Welcome to the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. And now your host of the show, Dr. Jennifer K. Thompson. Hi there, and thanks for joining us. I'm very glad that you did because I think you will enjoy the conversation you're about to hear. I certainly enjoyed having the conversation, so I hope you enjoy hearing it. I recently had an opportunity to speak to Professor Alana Redstone, who is at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She's in the Department of Sociology, and she works on things like immigration, education, uh, and the thing we really wanted to talk to her about, viewpoint diversity. Now, Alana, in addition to her teaching, does a lot of writing outside of, you know, her scholarly research. So she's had things published in Forbes, uh, Tablet Magazine. We'll, we'll link to a bunch of these things in the show notes so you can check it out. Uh, she also is a faculty fellow at Heterodox Academy, and she runs her own consulting business, Diverse Perspectives Consulting. So one, she's a really busy person um, and just published a new book with her co-author, John Villasenor of UCLA. It's called Unassailable Ideas, How Unwritten Rules and Social Media Shape Discourse in American Higher Education. So she's doing a lot of things. She's very busy, often the case with our guests. The reason we really wanted to talk to Alana today is to hear a little bit about a course that she's been teaching and her consulting work. And the course she's been teaching at uh, the University of Illinois is called Bigots and Snowflakes, or more technically, it's the Sociology of Political Polarization, Bigots and Snowflakes. But in the course, she is really trying to get her students to think about what the world looks like when we can't talk to one another or we don't want to hear diverse perspectives. So she's got a series of videos that she developed that go along with the course and we'll link to those but in those and in the course she is tackling topics like the importance of viewpoint diversity and and how we can build community despite having very different points of view she's looking at how our beliefs and our backgrounds shape the way we approach problems like the pandemic uh, or race or, you know, political disagreement, all those things. She's interested in how uh, we penalize people for, you know, things like offending someone and how that can chill dialogue between people. Or, you know, we tell people to stay in their lane. They don't get to discuss something because they are not, you know, they don't have the right background or identity to do it. She's thinking about all those things. She's talking to students about that. But she's also running a business where she's trying to help businesses create a climate and a culture where diverse viewpoints inform the work that people are doing and help them to get better at the work that they're doing. So we talk about all these things about the course, what she's learned, how students react. We talk about her consulting business and we talk a little bit about how all of this relates to things we see going on in the news today. So I hope you enjoy our discussion. We hear so often, you know, uh, I just think broad brushstrokes are kind of um, caricatures of what life must be like on a, on a college campus, right? You, you get all these things about, well, it's everything's so politicized. Um, 
students all believe this or they all believe that. And, mm-hmm. and we, um, you know, have talked to a number of people who are talking to students mm-hmm. about, uh, you know, bridging ideological divides. I mean, that's the way it all gets categorized. But I think what's really cool about those the, words. I know, I, have, I know. I don't have better ones, but we just. I know, yeah. but it, you're right. I mean, you're right to say that those have been used to the point where they're almost meaningless, polarization, right. ideology, you know, right. that kind of thing. But yeah, it's a proxy. We know what we're talking about, getting right. people who disagree to talk to each right. other in productive ways, you know, that right. sort of thing. Um, but, you know, we a lot of people do talk about that in terms of, well, here's a toolkit for it, or, you know, um, I suppose it's it's we've got these challenges, we're red and blue and all these things. What I love about the way you're approaching this, and we'll link in the show notes to uh, videos from the course, short videos, which gives people a sense of the topics and what you're thinking about and highlights that. I think that's great. But what I love about the way that you're doing it is what you're saying is one, it has to be practical, right? You just gave examples of let's talk about things that you're seeing right now. But two, I mean, the philosopher in me likes the way you approach this because you're thinking about how we know what we know how we come to know it, how we talk about it. So if you would talk a little bit about that approach in the classroom, what in the course itself, you're trying to get across to students and what you're trying to get them, how you're trying to get them engaged. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, like some students kind of get, really quickly get what you're saying. And some of them, it takes a little bit longer in the sense that maybe it has just has to do with whether or not they've taken a philosophy class. Um, But all of this that I, all of the work that I do, I mean, it is, you slide really fast into philosophy. Like just, I mean, all of it and like sort of all the epistemological questions and sort of, you know, truth and what is, what, what, you know, what, what is real and what is true and what happens when somebody's lived experience conflicts with sort of empirical evidence and sort of which is like, how do you, how do you think about all those things? Um, But yeah, I mean, I did have, I think one of the I can't remember if it's on my website. I think it might be one of the quotes on my website, but um, you know, like at the end of the last, I think it was at the end of the spring semester, a student made a comment about how, you know, it was something about how we don't, how do we know what we know, exactly what you said. And I was like, that's great. I was like, my work here is done, <laughs> like, you know? Well, and it's so relevant today because when you think about, I mean, we're, we're recording this on the 15th of January. So it's just mm-hmm. a week post attack on the Capitol. Right. So much of what's happening in public, discourse such as it is, is about what we can really know about truth, right? Right, right. It is, yeah, I mean, the whole, the capital thing is a, it's almost its own sort of, its own thing about, yeah, I mean, about the, these questions about truth. I personally have a little bit of a hard time getting my head around that, um, the whole QAnon, you know, why, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's almost like we believe something I thought about writing about this at one point, but it's almost like this, you know, this way of thinking about it that I'm going to believe something only because it's all I need to know is that it's possible and that you can't 100% prove it not true. Right. And that's somehow enough. It's like, it's like if I say, you know, my neighbor is a Russian spy. Right. Right. And like, I mean, like, really, like if I say my, my neighbor's a Russian spy and well, how do you know? Well, I can just tell. And 
Well, did you ask her? Well, she said she's not a Russian spy, but that's exactly what a Russian spy would say. That's exactly what a Russian spy Right. Well, did she, you know, she produced a birth certificate and it looks really authentic, but that only tells me that the, you know, the forgery process is really advanced. Right. Um, You know, and so it's just like, ah, like where do you, you know, so that's, you know, that's almost the whole, that piece of it is almost. Like in an extreme. Right. Well, you think about the Overton window and that's sort of almost, you know, sort of outside of it, but, but it is related. And I mean, you're right to raise it in the sense that it's, it is, these are questions about what is true and what counts as evidence. And when do we need, for what kinds of claims do we need evidence and how do we evaluate that? And how do we think about bias in evidence and in bias in research, frankly, Um, and what kinds of questions can science answer? Um, what kinds of questions can't science answer? Actually, I just wrote about that um, as well. I think that's coming out next week. But, um, but you know, it, but that those questions in terms of working with students about, you know, my approach has really been just to ask questions, like just to get them to, I, I would much rather sort of leave breadcrumbs through in the in the in the form of questions and see where people end up um you know the example that i always give is um you know if you want to take something and i this is an easy example to use because everybody knows instinctively what i'm talking about but if you want to talk about something like affirmative action can you say okay this is obviously a controversial topic and you say well you know is it possible for somebody to object or, or have concerns about or object to or pose or whatever, whatever, whatever sort of wherever they fall on the spectrum, affirmative action and not be racist. Let's just grant that people who really harbor racial animosity are almost certainly going to be opposed to affirmative action because they resent the groups yeah. that are, you know, that are targeted to benefit from the policy. So let's just set that aside. Let's just grant that is true. But if we so, assume not most people are right, at but that let's, end, well, right. so we don't have to have to go there. Like I don't even have yeah. to assign percentages, but let me just, yeah. let me just pose the question and say, is it possible for somebody to oppose or question or whatever and not be racist? And then usually people will sort of, they're like, well, you know, I'm not really sure I'm comfortable saying that it's a hundred percent of people like you sort of, it's almost like a toe in the door to think about it. Right. And it's like, and so then if they, if they sort of recognize that that's, that that possibility exists, then you can say, well, you know, if all you know about the person is in this example is that they oppose affirmative action, can you tell whether it's because they harbor racial animosity or if it's because of any of the other, well, so then you, sorry, I skipped a question. The next question would be, well, what are some of the reasons somebody might oppose, non-racist reasons somebody might oppose or question or have concerns about affirmative action? And then once you've listed those, then you could say, well, if all you know is that the person opposes affirmative action, can you tell the difference between the person who, right? Like the person who is really harboring racial animosity and the person who has, you know, one of these other reasons that you've listed, you know, which obviously you can't. And so then the question becomes, well, what does that mean? Like, what are the implications of that? What does it mean to get it wrong? Yeah. And what does it mean if you get it wrong a lot? Yeah. Um, so think- and yeah. I so that's the that's- kind of question. That's the kind of questions like, and they get it. I mean, like yeah. a lot of students, well, they're like, oh, you know, that's, but it's sort of the process of thinking through the implications. And there's, you know, there's a there's a, a large number of examples like that that you could go through. I'm sorry, Jennifer, you were going to say something. No, 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 that's okay. I, um, I mean, I think that's really, I know that you're, that's the way you're teaching the class. I know that's the subject. I know that you 
are accustomed to doing that and are having success with that. But I think that is like the really, really revolutionary thing in a way for the average person today to hear that, hey, let's slow down, right? You have some information about somebody. It's one piece of information. Mm -hmm. We're so quick to assign because of that one piece of information, a whole host of other things about the person. So, this and, well, I person, think we, and I think worse yeah. than that is that we we don't we don't talk about what the implications are. Right. What, this, that last question about what does it mean to get it wrong? I mean, really, what does it mean to get it wrong? The, I mean, you know, those are profound. The, the implications are profound. Absolutely. To to make assumptions about a person, their character, about what they believe, and all these other things, and at the at, at, in addition to that it's the end of discussion, right? There's no further discussion because I have assigned to this person a set of beliefs and characteristics based on some piece of signaling I've gotten. Because I've determined that if you say you are opposed to affirmative action, therefore you must be a racist, you must be this, you must be that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And we just shorthand that about the person and we don't wanna have any other discussion. And the real problem with that, as you point out is, if we can't have those kinds of discussions about that, about difficult issues, uh, not only are we not going to solve those problems, we'll never solve those problems. We'll be just right. talking at each other, I think, right. pretty much the way that we do. But we're not going to make any progress. We're not going to innovate beyond that. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, you can't, I mean, it, well, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of, I mean, yeah, I mean, there are there are sort of micro level and macro level implications of that. I mean, there are interpersonal implications. There are, you know, you said innovation. There are sort of business related implications in terms of the climate that's created. And anytime that you have people walking on eggshells, you know, I hate to use that expression, but like, but that, you know, well, I can't let this thing be known. And, you know, and I don't mean to minimize, I'm not saying, you know, this is one of the problems that needs that needs to be addressed. I'm not suggesting that real issues of that it's should take um, precedence or that it's more important than real concerns about discrimination or yeah. sort of you know um, in the workplace or, or outside of the workplace. Um, but it is it needs to be part of the conversation in terms of how we're thinking about this. That there has to be some you know. I don't know if balance is the right word, but it has to be part of the conversation. Like there has to be, there has to be a conversation about it. This is sort of what is always kind of staggering to me is just, well, are, how are we not talking about this? Yeah, like, yeah. how are we, you know, I mean, there's another example, there's another example that, you know, it's cause it's not, I mean, issues around race. I do think um, race identity in general, but race in particular are, they are sort of, they're almost in a class by themselves um, in the sense of like, so for example, one of the problems that I think happens, and I think this happens in, you know, in, in the workplace and also and on campus and just in per- interpersonal interactions as well, is that, you know, there are these methods for trying to get people to talk about difficult issues. And some of it is, some of it sort of weaves its way through conflict resolution. Some of it is more you know, just, you know, how to have difficult conversations, these things. But a lot of times the examples that are given, this is in my experience, a lot of times the examples that are given 
are, you know, take conflict resolution, for instance, are fairly anodyne in the sense that they are, you know, they're sort of easy to digest, they're easy to chew on. And, and then the expectation is that people will then make the connection. Well, we give them the skills in this context. And then we assume that people will make the connection and be able to apply these skills in this other context. For example, something that touches race or identity, which is basically radioactive in terms of, of how we talk about it. And so, and I don't think that that translation happens. And I think that it, and I think that people don't recognize that. Um, and it's sort of like, well, we're going to give you these skills over here. And then once you have these skills, then you should be able to, but then it's like without drawing that line explicitly, okay, well, here's actually how you have to apply that in this case on this sensitive issue, whether it's, you know, this issue of identity or this issue of how do we think about intent or how do yeah. we think about, you know, how do we think about fairness? I mean, yeah. I think a lot of it, I think, again, that's not to oversimplify, but you know, these differences in how we think about identity, intent, and fairness. It's not an it's not an entirely complete explanation for where things break down, but it's a lot of it. Yeah. Um, and we are not. Yeah, we're not. People are not sort of prepared to have those conversations in a way that recognizes that there are different ways that people think about. It. And more than that, I would say different morally valid ways that people think about those topics. Um, so. There are a couple of interesting things in what you're saying there, and and I want to stick with this subject a little bit because it's a good mm -hmm. concrete example, the one about identity uh, or race, mm -hmm. recognizing that those are huge subjects and that there are many, many practical policy challenges, uh, and not just policy challenges, right? Like interpersonal relationships, community challenges, all those things associated with that. Mm -hmm. It's... I think, and, and I know you'll correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's it's not enough to say, here's a toolkit, now go out and go apply it uh, right. in all these places. Part of what, what needs to happen for each of us uh, is that we, at some level, have to develop the right habits for this, right? We have to develop that pause that you talked about a little bit, like not letting ourselves immediately be drawn into the either or right but to stop and and you know we, we i see it more and more frequently intellectual humility and i think we right. kind of we we say oh we all know what that means but but when it really comes down to it i think intellectual humi humility is like this radical way of having a set of habits or habituating yourself to a way of approaching really difficult things right. and also being willing to be really uncomfortable. And being willing to be wrong. Yeah. I mean, yeah. 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 I mean, I think that we just, I, and I think, you know, this does go back to the higher education piece. I think that we do collectively, I think we do a terrible job of, pre of preparing students for this, um, for this world, this is, I don't know if you read the tablet piece that I wrote. Um, I did, yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is what I talk about in that piece. Um, we don't prepare students for this. We don't get them to ask, we don't, you know, this is a failure on the part of instructors, you know, and I mean, higher education in general, but we don't get them to ask questions and have conversations. Like, so here's, an, I'll give you another example. You know, I was in a class, this was, I guess in the fall of 2019, when we were still in person, this was in a social problems class, which is um, pretty um, 
a common class in a sociology department. And, uh, but I, you know, I of course teach it in my own way, which is, you know, with, you know, diverse perspectives and all that. So, um, and we were talking at one point and the classes are very diverse, very racially and ethnically diverse. And uh, when we, there's more women than men, so the gender mm-hmm. balance is not perfect, but they're very racially and ethnically diverse. But um, there was one class period where we were talking about, we spent a lot of time talking about racism and sort of how people think, how we think about racism and what, what, is, what is racism and what, what is intent and like all, all of this stuff. So we talk about this, you know, 15 weeks of the semester, we probably spent 14 of them talking. Yeah, sure. I mean, maybe not, but, but a lot. And so at one point in one of the classes, there were some students who were talking about, there were some of the black students in class who were talking about their experiences with racism. You know, um, one young woman who said, you know, who was recalling a time where she was told, you know, you're pretty for a black girl. Mm. You know, like these really sort of like, oh God, that's, you know, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. cringe, cringe, like you, you feel awful just hearing this stuff. I mean, there was another woman, a young woman who said, you know, that she, I think she said that she'd been on her dance team in high school and, um, and they were doing superlatives at the end of the year and she was voted for, you know, best, most best hip hop or something. And she was like, I don't even like hip hop, you know? And she was like, it's, you know, and I was like, yeah. you know, so these, so these students were talking about their, their experiences and which was really important for them. And it was really important for the rest of the class to hear. And it was just, it was very useful in a lot of ways, I think for people to hear about it. And so, but one of the things that happened in that class and my point in bringing this up this example was, um, one of the last students to speak was this woman who, I'm not sure what her ethnic background was. I think she's Latina of some, some sort, and I don't, but I don't know the details of her background. And she was talking about how when she wears her hair pulled back in a bun and when she wears hoop earrings mm-hmm. and people will say things to her like, you know, oh, you know, way to keep it real or something. And, uh, and of course me, like, I didn't know what that, I was like, I don't know what that means. Uh, now I know that that means like she was looking more like her true authentic, authentic ethnic self. And that mm-hmm. when she doesn't wear her hair in a bun and in hoop earrings, she's trying to look white or something. I don't know. That was the sort of implication, but I was the only, my point in telling all this is that I was the only one that didn't understand what that, like keeping it real. Yeah. I was just like, I have no idea what that means. And so the entire class in that moment, the entire class, they all got it. And I didn't. And you could literally see. So you went from this time where we're talking about these race, these students with these racist experiences, which was, again, like, I think by all accounts, really important for them to share and important for everyone else to hear. But, you know, none of the white students have them. What are they going to say about their experiences with racism? They don't have experience yeah. with racism. And so you could see the dynamic shift from this line that was a sort of racial division to, frankly, age. And it happened like that. And so, cause it was suddenly like I, they all got something and I didn't. Yeah. And so it was this moment where it was like, you know, how many, how many experiences when you've, when all you focus on is this thing, this, you know, race and, and which again, not to minimize it, it was no, the, the no, students no. talking about their experiences. It was important, but it was sort of like, you could literally see things shift and it was like, well, you know, can you lean too much into race? Like, is it possible again with this? Is it possible? Is it possible to lean too much into race and to racialize too much? Um, And so to try and get them thinking about, so that was, that was my purpose in bringing up that example, but to try and get them to think about like, what are you missing? What kinds of experiences are you missing when you think about your identity? And when we talk about identity in this narrow manner. But you know what, what is so striking to me about that story is you know, one of the things that I, I think is really uh, kind of uh, the, the common narrative 
among many people about higher education is Mm -hmm. this whole thing about safe, safe spaces, right? We get these Uh extreme examples of, you know, and it's things that allow people to sort of dismiss out of hand what's going on in higher education. Like, oh, well, there's a speaker on campus that you're not going to like. So we've got a room and you can come play with toys and it's quiet and there's soft furniture and all that. Yeah. (laughs) Puppies, whatever. Right. Which on when you hear that, then it enables people to say, oh, yeah, that's crazy talking, blah, blah, blah. What you just described, though, is creating an atmosphere that is, in fact, a safe space to talk about things that are very difficult subjects and to make people comfortable in a way to trust one another that you're learning from right. that and can ask tough questions. At the same time, it's an unsafe space because you have to address issues and ideas that may be really uncomfortable for you right. and tough. But the safeness is about being able to trust one another and have that kind of discussion, knowing that at any time something could go really wrong because you have also described in some of the things I've read situations where you have this openness of discussion and somebody says something that offends a bunch of other people. Right. So (laughs) you can't make these decisions based on, as you say, you can't make decisions about what we're going to talk about on whether or not it's going to hurt someone's feelings because it's always going to hurt someone's feelings. Well, yeah. And I mean, that becomes its own question, right? Is it, you know, is it, are there, is it possible for somebody to be offended too easily? How do you, if, if it's pot, like, how do you let offense be the sort of metric or the, you know, that you're going to, this is the switch. If this switch is flipped, then we, then we shut things down. Like, you know, the thing, just really quickly, the thing that you said about, um, you know, sort of the shout downs and dissipations and safe spaces and all that business, like that's, to me, that is, you know, those are, yes, those are real cons- Obviously, no one's doing anything on campus these days, so it's less of an issue. But right. um, but those are real concerns and those are real issues. To me, they are at some level downstream from the problem that I'm, tra- problem tra- excuse me, that I'm trying to solve. Yeah. Um, and so I'm working upstream at sort of how do we, let's not even get there. Like how right, those are we, symptoms of something that's gone exactly, wrong. Right. Yep. Those Before are symptoms that. of something that's, that's already gone wrong. Um, and so that's not the metric that I would choose to use in evaluating the sort of health and vitality of a climate. Yeah. The question is, I think for higher education, not do you have bad examples, but what are you doing to avoid getting to that point or getting, getting to the point where those, <laughs> right. those bad examples are the norm, right? Right. And, and what you're doing in this class is trying to avoid getting to the point where that's the norm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I just, I, I, I guess my, my motivation is always comes back to this, like how we have to be able to talk about things, like for all these reasons, for businesses, for, I mean, you could go very meta sort of for, for the health of a democracy or whatever. I mean, just you have to be able to talk about these questions. Like you can't just call someone a racist or whatever. And then, I mean, it's this sort of, yeah, these sort of dead ends and there's so many of them and there's so, and the tripwires and sort of, I don't think we think through what that means. I don't think we evaluate, particularly in higher education, but then as it bleeds out, I don't think that we evaluate the costs of that oh, yeah. Um, yeah. accurately at all. Yeah. No, I was at an, uh, a meeting I don't know, some years ago and we were talking with faculty and talking about, well, you know, what, what are the sort of threats when you think about academic freedom and had raised questions about trigger warnings, all this stuff. And to a person, no one said, oh, I'm most worried about, you know, 
academic freedom. What I'm worried about is the chilling effect of, um, I don't think they said political correctness, but not being able to talk right. about certain things, right? That we would never yeah. even have a discussion about um, race, or we would only have one kind of discussion about race. And it doesn't have to be yeah. race. There's a million other questions we could we yeah. could put in there. That just happens to be one that's incredibly Although a important. lot of them tie to identity of some form yeah. or another, but yeah. That worries them more than that someone wasn't going to publish their paper or that, you know, someone yeah. was going to require a trigger warning or anything yeah. like that. It really was, what's the atmosphere we set for yeah. the the boundaries of discussion? Um, right. And, and if, if the problem is, if anybody's going to be uncomfortable, we can't talk about it, then we are not going to be able to solve a lot of problems or we're not going to include a lot of different voices in solving right. those problems. Yeah. Right. So you mentioned business uh, and you do have a consulting business that you you are, you know, in the, engaged in the same efforts outside of higher education, but with businesses, which I assume mostly in the private sector. Um, we we had back in the fall a fellow named Bob Feldman, who has a project uh, to try and get businesses to be a part of the solution to encouraging um civil discourse, basically. Mm -hmm. and, and his point of view was, look, businesses can do so much and how much time we spend in our businesses. Right. Uh, so talk a little bit about in that, in that consulting, what are you doing in businesses? Is it exactly the same as what you're doing in the classroom? I could imagine those people need the same thing that your students do, but. Yeah. I mean, so that's something that I, that is something that I started about, um, a, well, I guess about a year and a half ago now, um, mm -hmm. you know, because the best time to really try and launch a business is right before a global absolutely. pandemic. Absolutely. Oh yes, yeah. absolutely. No, I'm really pleased with my timing. Um, <laughs> so um, yeah, and the idea was really to take some of what I'm doing inside the academy and out, take it outside of the academy. And so that is trying to, you know, I've thought a lot about how, what the right way to sort of really appeal to the business world on mm -hmm. this is. And, you know, so it sounds like Bob, I don't, Bob, Bob Feldman. Bob Feldman yeah. yeah, it sounds like maybe he was saying, you know, appealing to almost the moral obligation, um, right? And so, which I totally get, which I think, you know, I don't know, I'd be interested to know how much success he has with that. I just, my impression is that, you know, if it's not going to affect the bottom line, if it's not going to make us more widgets or whatever, you know, don't talk to me about the moral obligation. I mean, for as much as, you know, people pay lip service to it, but you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if that angle works. Um, well, you know, I think, go ahead. Go, well, I was going to say along the lines of what you said before, in terms of when we're thinking about problem solving and in innovation and right. creativity in those cases, right. I think in part, the idea should be that you will be better at creating the widgets if you have the kind of right. environment. Well, I think it's true. I mean, I think it is absolutely true. I mean, I think so. I think that I think that you could end up at the same place by coming at it from a different angle, which is, you know, through questions around innovation, which is what you brought up. I mean, in the, you know, that sort of the, the, um, you know, the kryptonite for innovation is groupthink, mm. right? And so, you know, groupthink is related to all of this stuff that we're talking about, because it turns out that if you create a climate where people are just, you know, constantly tiptoeing around tripwires, then that doesn't stay contained to only these, you know, these two issues over here. It turns out that yeah. it actually... Um, that's just not how people interact. And so it's not, you know, from an innovation standpoint, um, it's not, it's not helpful, but it's, and it's also just not a, you know, 
if you want to think about, you know, the, all these buzzwords like inclusion and, you know, and, and a truly inclusive environment or, you know, people, you know, places where I just did this series of interviews with um, chief diversity officers for the Forbes column. And so, oh, yeah. and one of the, one of the, or two of the words that came up most frequently was this idea of, um, you know, people bring their whole self to work and they bring their authentic self to work. It was either their whole self or the authentic self. And so obviously their whole authentic self in this day and age includes their politics. Um, and so, you know, there's this piece of it where it's like you, you need to give people the skills. If you want this truly inclusive environment, there has to be a piece of it where you're going to recognize that people oh, yeah. disagree about a lot of these topics. I mean, we just had, I mean, a lot of times when I say political polarization, people think about, you know, sort of differences in, you know, who you vote for, which is really not exactly what I'm mm-hmm. talking about. I mean, that's mm-hmm. sort of, I guess, a piece of it, but that's really, I'm talking about really broadly construed ideas of politics. But having said that, you know, we just had an election where there's 74 million people in this country who just voted for Donald Trump. And so, you know, regardless of, without making any sort of normative statement about it like there's just that's a lot of people it is and yeah. so they're working somewhere yeah and so you know and then the 81 people 81 million or whatever who voted for biden and so you know this this is happening whether to employers this is happening whether you like it or not yeah um it's here it's at your doorstep and figure it out yeah i think that's right well and and think about this too i mean i'm sure you have thought about this if if we understand that bringing your whole self authentic self to be you either voted for Donald Trump or you voted for Joe Biden, or, you know, you either voted for Joe Biden or you didn't, or Donald Trump or you didn't, whatever. Think about the paucity of the landscape for that, that kind of discussion, right? You are either this person who voted for this or you voted for that. Right. And I would, that's just got to be from the point of view of being able to talk to one another in a way that enables us to do our jobs, to have productive relationships with people in our communities. If that's all that there is of us, or that because of that, there's a thousand other things we ascribe to a person that we don't really know about. Right. Right. No, I think that's right. Um, You know, yeah, I think that's a good point. And, you know, and, and again, you know, aside from the sort of people bringing their whole self to work, and I don't mean to suggest that that's a bad thing, like, but it is, I'm just saying, I'm just making an observation. No, no, that yeah. Part of that means that, you know, everything is politicized now. I guess teaching just people how to navigate that. Yes, right? teaching yeah. people how to navigate that space and working with companies to help them figure out, okay, well, what is the climate? I guess I see my role as, you know, you, if you're a business owner X, like you have a business, you you have some, what is your, what kind of climate do you want to create? Like, what do you want to do? What is the climate that you want to create? And usually nobody, nobody's going to say like, I want a completely censorious climate where people feel like they, you know, can't speak without, you know, losing their job. No one's going to say that. And so given that, like, if you want some sort of open climate, and particularly if you weave innovation into that, you can work towards that. If you can have a goal, and in some ways, you know, I do think that in the private sector, I think in some ways there's an advantage over the over higher education in the sense that, you know, higher education, we are, the administrators are, you know, they're really sort of trying to be all things to all people um, and talk out both sides of their mouth. 
Um, and so, but in, a, in the private sector, you do have a bottom line, right? And so you have to, there is an incentive to get all the ships pointed in the same direction and sort of to create a climate. And so if you have a climate where you value open communication, you value innovation, you can use that as a starting point to have some of these conversations and say, okay, well, let's take this hypothetical example. So for instance, you're in a meeting where you're talking about hiring and somebody says, you know, they think the most qualified person should get the job and somebody else either in that meeting or later on says that they think that that's offensive because it sort of uh, denies the unique challenges faced by members of underrepresented groups. Okay, how do you want to handle that? Right? At, like, what is the climate that you want to create? And how do you want to respond to that situation? Because how you want to, how you respond to that situation is either going to take you closer to this climate that you said you wanted to create, or yeah. get you further away from it. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's, I think, you know, I think that there's room to work on that here. But yeah, but again, like, sort of just, you know, the upshot is that, yeah, people don't have the skills. They where would they have them? I mean, yeah. you know, again, like I can spend hours thinking about this, but yeah. most people have other jobs to do. Um, well, and on and- top of that, given the nature or given the way things are today, they're not going to get a lot of the modeling of that behavior. Right. In- so I'm saying, right. So what I'm saying is let's start to ask those questions. Let's model it. It's and I do think that it is a I think it's good for businesses. I think it's good for higher education. I think it's good for, I mean, yeah. again, like it's good for democracy. Like that sounds very lofty, but, um, but it's not wrong. It's <laughs> yeah. not wrong. Like it's lofty, but it's also right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's excellent. And I think uh, in your tablet piece, which we'll link to as well, yeah. one of the things I really liked about that is you said cautious optimism, which always reminds me of. of well, I didn't do the title. They always, they yeah. do the titles, but yeah. Oh, okay, was, so you didn't actually it. say it. Right. But you did say that you have some optimism about it, right? Yeah. Within the, the body of it. And I think that is something we all need to hear today that, you know, yeah, let's be realistic. Uh, we can't, we can't sort of push aside all the challenges that we're facing as a result of the pandemic and as, you know, what's going on politically and all of that. But to, to also still be able to say, look, I'm seeing young people, we're going through these discussions and I've got, I think in the long term, I think is what you say, in the long term, I think there's reason to be hopeful. Yeah, I think, I, I guess I should, you know, what I tried to convey in that piece, you know, is that, but it's not going to happen by itself. And, you know, there has to be this sort of you know, this sort of leading people to this, to asking these questions, to having these conversations. But what I'm, what, but the optimism is that I think the potential is there. I don't, I mean, I think, but you, but you have to, but it's not going to, it's not going to be fulfilled on its own. Or yeah. I mean, for maybe for a couple of people it will, but, but on, on a scale that is that on the scale that we need, it's not going to happen on its own. No, I think that's, I think that's, those are two really important things that potential is there yeah. and we need to do work. I think those yeah. are great. Okay, so we will link to, you have a new book out, you and a co-author. Yeah, my co-author and I, yeah, John Villasenor is my co-author at UCLA, yeah. And the name of the book? The name of the book is Unassailable Ideas, How Unwritten Rules and Social Media Shape Discourse in American Higher Education. Yeah, so you're focused on higher education there, but you, I'm, I'm sure Everything just Everything from... we say in that book is, applies outside of higher yeah. education. I was going to say, I can, I can imagine people hearing that title can understand that this, yep. all of the things you're talking about there are suffused in what we're discussing. Right. Well, we really appreciate you being here uh, and uh, know that a lot of people want to hear about your work. So we appreciate you taking the oh, time Well, thank you so much for us. having me on the show. I appreciate it. Absolutely.
I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I got a lot out of it. I think um, there's a lot in that conversation, which is a reflection of the fact that Alana is doing a lot of different things. And she. I'm just glad there's somebody who has the kind of energy and enthusiasm she does for this subject, preserving uh, a culture that values viewpoint diversity. I mean, the thing that I'm going to take away from that conversation primarily is that this is something we can't hold other people accountable for if we're not holding ourselves accountable. So while many of us may have a desire to be uh, around people who have different points of view, uh, we that kind of thing doesn't just happen. We have to work at it. So this week, I'm going to do something a little bit different here and suggest maybe something very practical that you can do to uh, kind of get the flavor of and some of the tips and ideas from uh, Alana's class, Bigots and Snowflakes, as well as her consulting work. And that is go to YouTube. We'll link to it in the show notes and check out the series of videos that she's developed in conjunction with the class. I think there are maybe seven of them. None, None is longer than six and a half, seven minutes. Some are as short as three or four minutes. And sit down and watch those and maybe watch them with a friend or a relative and talk about them afterwards and see what you think. Uh, I think if we are going to solve some of the problems that we have in our society, or at a minimum, create an environment where we can get closer to solving those problems because we're getting the best ideas from one another, we all need to do a little work. So in this case, Hopefully it's not really painful work, but it's something that, you know, does take your time spending some time looking at those things. I hope you'll do that. And I hope you enjoyed the conversation and I hope you will join us again for another conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. We'll see you next time for another conversation.